0: This is Professor James Milak from the History Department here at the University of Washington, and he specializes on Central Eastern European regions, so we will cover that part of Europe within our topic today. And, um, do you want me to just darken the screen? Yeah, that's not on you. Okay. okay. And, and do you have the handouts? Yes. Okay. I will pass it. so it's a pretty good. basic handout. Those are just, um, so I'm going to talk about Poland and Hungary. I'll talk about three political parties, they're all listed. Uh, the two that are governing I have their leaders there uh, as well so um, East Central Europe is is a place where when one thinks of sort of right-wing populism it's had the most success of anywhere in Europe whereas in Western Europe these these uh, parties are kind of out there on the the kind of on the side sort of as a uh, kind of looming, in case there's a crisis, maybe they'll grow and become uh, capable of stepping into power. Well, in East Europe, in a couple of places at least, these parties are already in power, uh, and in fact, in power in a, in a uh, fairly dominant position. And that's Poland and Hungary. So I want to talk about the kind of the right-wing populist party in both of those countries, and then also talk about a, a really extreme uh, party uh, in Hungary, which is really about as close to neo-fascist as, as you're going to get. And it's also doing fairly uh, successfully, probably stronger than any such party anywhere in Europe. Uh, so these movements are, are felt most strongly, and they're uh, having the most success in the areas uh, that I'm talking about today. So let me start with Poland. So you have the Law and Justice Party, it's called, or Pravo sprawiedliwosc uh, They're the number one party in the parliament. They have most of the seats. They were founded, they were rooted, actually, in the solidarity movement that uh, fought the communists on behalf of labor rights and human rights. Um, like A lot of these parties start out uh, with people who have credibility for fighting for what we think of as the more sort of liberal causes. Uh, but in 2001, a couple of activists uh, from the former Solidarity Union uh, founded a party. They were the Kaczynski twins, uh, Yaroslav and Lech. And they were actually, they were, they were twins. They were child actors. Uh, and they were you know, like Mary-Kate and Ashley, uh, <laughs> or the, the Zach and Cody. Uh, they were child actors, and then they got involved as, as activists uh, in the late communist period, and then became politicians uh, in the 90s, and founded this successful political party. Um, and there was a lot of resentment in Poland in the 1990s, because there was this feeling, of, uh, largely true, that when the communists stepped aside and Poland transitioned into a democratic Western style society, the communists were given golden parachutes and a lot of them really made out like bandits in the 90s. Uh, They used their connections, they used all the money they'd been uh, robbing people of in the 70s and 80s and then leveraged that into successful business careers and other opportunities. Uh, so there was a lot of, lot of resentment that the people that actually suffered under communism were still suffering in the 90s uh, and, and beyond, and a lot of the communists made out well. And, and Kaczynski's could mobilize that sort of anger and were able to uh, win the election in 2005, and Yaroslav, who's on your list there, he became the prime minister. And then after that there was a presidential election, and his brother Lech became the president. So you have these two, two twins now running Poland in the top two positions. And they're in power for about two years, and then they lose an election in 2007. And that was the more, you know, the voters in that election were the, uh, the winners were those that were more kind of European-oriented, more uh, on a liberal direction. Uh, a lot of immigrants that were working abroad but could still vote at home uh, helped tip that election. And so the uh, Law and Justice Party was was out of, of uh, power for a while. But they remained strong. And then in 2015, they won the election in a landslide. Uh, they ended up with uh, a majority of the seats. In part, 235 out of 460 seats. And that's what year? That's uh, in 2015. 15. And this is the first time one party has gotten such a major, gotten a majority like that, an uh, 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 absolute majority since Poland became, probably in the entire history of Poland, to be honest but certainly since 1989. And then one of their party members, Andrzej Duda, was elected president. It's a separate election from the parliamentary elections, of course. So let me say a little bit about this party and why this party was attractive to so many voters. And then uh, we'll, we'll switch over and talk about the same thing for Hungary. So the party is, and this is something you know to, to keep in mind, these right-wing populist parties in Europe, this isn't like the Tea Party in the United States. These are guys that want a stronger state These are guys that support social welfare programs. That's even part of their appeal. These are people that are suspicious of free market. They want uh, government controls on economy to a certain, you know, they're not not communist. They want uh, definitely a stronger state, as most Europeans do uh, all over the continent. Uh, So they're big supporters of universal health care. They're big supporters of family. Uh, They want pro-family tax structures. They want subsidized uh, subsidized housing for young couples, Uh, longer-paid maternity leave. These are parts of their programs, and when they're in power, they try to get these kinds of laws uh, passed. They tend to be protectionist economically. They want Polish businesses to get the contracts, not have things uh, (coughs) being produced and bought from abroad, if they can help. I mean, they're not radical aparchists or anything, but they want to do more for the Polish economy rather than... Uh, buy everything from abroad. They also kind of drift toward authoritarianism. Uh, they want stronger executive. They want to weaken the oversight over the executive branch. So they want to, you know, undermine or weaken judicial independence. They want to undermine or weaken the uh, independence of the media. Uh, so they'll pass laws or appoint people. Uh, they'll take the country in that direction. They make sure that they have uh, that the civil service has people loyal to them. They make sure that the intelligence services have people loyal to them. Uh, Poland, the government owns a lot of businesses. And they'll make sure the people running those businesses, the CEO, is loyal to the party. Um, You'll have guys, uh, The Economist magazine was complaining uh, last year, guys running Polish corporations appointed by the state who don't really understand the business the corporation does. A lot of the guys don't speak English, which is unusual as a CEO. of a major European, uh, uh, European corporations. They're socially conservative, these populist parties, including um, including the Law and Justice Party. They're strongly against abortion. They're against gay rights. Uh, they're against violence in the media. They're against sex in the media. They're for blue laws. I grew up with these, where certain things are closed on Sunday uh, to protect you know, families and, and whatnot. Uh, their foreign policy, they're, they're leery of the EU, even though they belong. Uh, but they're much more positive about the United States. So it's an Atlanticist foreign policy. Uh, they're very pro-Israel uh, in the Middle East. They're very hostile to Russia. This makes really the Poles more or less unique among populist right-wing movements. Because just about everywhere else in Europe, the populist right-wing likes Russia and likes Putin. But in Poland, because of the historical experience with Russia, uh, they're hostile. Um, they're hostile to immigration. They don't want immigrants coming, uh, particularly from Middle East or North Africa, uh, into Poland. So it's a very popular part of their program. Uh, they tend to believe in conspiracy theories. There's a, a huge conspiracy theory right now in Poland. It's been going on for years. Uh, in 2010, the Polish president, Lech Kaczynski, one of the twins, died in a plane crash. He and 94 other Polish dignitaries were flying to Russia for a commemoration of uh, where the Russians murdered 22,000 Polish officers during World War II. Uh, And the plane crashes. And there's these uh, conspiracy theory that the Polish government, this was actually they were trying to assassinate their president. she assassinated him. This was all planned. Russia and the Polish government wanted to kill Lech Kaczynski. And so they engineered all of this. So there's a protest once a month on the date of the crash. There's a protest in front of the presidents, uh, hundreds of people. I've seen these protests uh, uh, firsthand demanding that the truth be admitted about this. A party is also nationalistic. I'll talk about that uh, near my conclusion. Reasons for law and justice's success. Whenever you look at success of some sort of uh, right-wing populist party, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, what's wrong with the other party? Because people are, you know, oftentimes, they don't like the alternatives. And people in Poland had gotten tired of the governing party. It was called the Civic Platform. It had been in power since 2007. It had a lead. Its major figure was a guy named Donald Tusk. But he then got um, uh, appointed uh, commissioner of, of, uh, head of the European Commission, so he left. And so uh, his successor, Eva Kopacz, wasn't quite as... As successful, wasn't quite as popular. Uh, so the party uh, is uh, losing uh, its its popular support. Uh, another reason that helps the right wing is that the left wing is very weak, fractured, barely gets 10 percent of the vote in Poland. Uh, so people are uh, that's not seen as a viable alternative. Um, law and Justice appeals to the losers in the economic transition people who have bleak futures, uh, people that are unemployed, living in depressed parts of the country, uh, they're more likely to, uh, 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 the the message of law and justice will resonate with them. Uh, Areas, if you live in an area where you get the sense the government just doesn't care about you. uh, A lot of these are rural areas. Poland kind of goes from liberal to conservative as you go from the northwest to the southeast. So the southeast part of the country runs very strong for law and justice. But uh, program uh, they also reach out you know through social programs, jobs programs to the more distressed areas. They were very major uh, critics of corruption, uh, and since other governments were uh, more corrupt than them, uh, they were able to play that up uh, as well. Particularly the outrage people had over how many communists got rich uh, after 1989. Uh, another thing that helps law and justice is there's a there's a Catholic radio priest called the Father Lidzik. Uh, he's like a Rush Limbaugh of, of Poland, uh, and he has a radio program, Radio Maria, and he gets all the, the conservative Catholic rural voters to go out on Election Day and vote for parties, uh, either Law and Justice, or actually sometimes a little splinter Catholic party that will ally uh, with Law and Justice. R- is almost exactly like Father Coughlin in the United States in the 30s, if you know him. So it's almost like him uh, reincarnated. Um, the party also did a makeover for these 2015 elections. Uh, there's a big outreach to young, urban, educated people, and they have some success with that. Uh, they're good with social media. Uh, they kept Yaroslav out of the limelight. You know, he, he's kind of off-putting to sort of young, educated, urban people. He plays much better in the conservative rural areas, so they, they kind of kept him out of the limelight. Uh, he, he runs the party, but he's not the prime minister. After they won the election, they put a woman named Biata Shidwo in that position. Uh, so that helped their party among certain groups. They presented themselves as being probably more moderate than they really are. Um, their opposition, among uh, they get a lot of conservative votes because they're very they're hostile to the so-called gender ideology, um, about with just uh, you know tra- uh, transgendered rights and gay rights and gay marriage and on and on and on. Uh, and they appeal to people's nationalism. Uh, when they get criticized by the EU, that sometimes actually helps their party uh, as kind of a backlash. And, and one interesting story, this came out just this past year, is the former government was funding this project to build this. It's going to be the, the world's greatest museum of World War II. It's going to be. It was in Gdansk, uh, which is where the war started when uh, Nazi Germany invaded, and it's going to sort of look at the war globally from multi perspectives and be this really kind of upscale, high-tech museum. And when Law and Justice won the election and the Civic Platform was out, uh, the project got cut. Uh, And Law and Justice argument, which I think a lot of Poles would agree with, was why should we have to have a global museum? Why can't we have a museum that celebrates Poland? Talks about how we're the heroes and we're the victims, and talks about the war from a Polish perspective. Every other country in the world talks about the war or their wars from their own perspective. Why do we have to be the ones that are cosmopolitan? Uh, so you've got pushback. And so the countries divide over these kinds of issues. Uh, and then, of course, immigration, very unpopular. Uh, and law and justice being anti-immigration in a big way uh, get support that way. A couple of the ironies in all of this is that if you look at Poland, the regions that get the most aid and assistance from the EU are the ones that vote against the EU. So I just have it in Britain with the Brexit. It happens in the United States in certain regions as well. And then the other uh, thing to keep in mind is Poland is really an economic success story. I mean, they, they actually got, they grew as an economy during the recession. Um, but like in a lot of places, including US, it's in some areas. So Warsaw looks great. But you go out to the you know, other towns, or other cities even, uh, they're dilapidated, they're run down, there's not a lot uh, going on. Uh, so there are neglected areas, I, I, I see this all the time. Every summer I go back to visit my family in a depressed deal town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Pittsburgh looks great. It looked great for 20 years, but all these towns are just just dying. Um, and so, uh, it's the same kind of thing. So that's, that's where you're getting the populist support uh, at, at its strongest. And there's some pushback in Poland. There's a new political party formed called Nowoczesna. which means like new, like contemporary or new times. And uh, it's trying to be an alternative. Uh, and there's also a movement that's not really a party, but it's called the Committee for Defense of Democracy. And it's just trying to, to check efforts by the government to concentrate power uh, in the executive. And it's led by some guy. He's an IT professional. Doesn't have any political background. Let's uh, shift on to Hungary now. Kaczynski is very good friends with the leader of the Hungarian right-wing populist. In fact, they even meet in the mountains for long uh, discussions uh, about these kinds of things. In Hungary, the uh, movement is called Fidesz. And it, t- it started, it's not just rooted in the communist period, it started back under the communists. Uh, and it was started by young student radicals that wanted to fight for freedom and democracy and uh, human rights uh, against the regime. And they were called the Alliance of Young Democrats. Fid Fy from Fides is from the Hungarian word for young, and De for democratic, and S or S for um, alliance. And there was even a rule when it started: you had to be uh, 35 years old or younger to be in the movement. Once you turned 36, you had to quit. Uh, that's pretty harsh. You know, Catholic Church lets you be a youth till you're 39 in, in terms of that uh, back to the Roman Empire, to be honest. Uh, but so this, this Fides movement. Uh, started out, and they, and they were led by this guy, Viktor Orban. This very dashing, very intelligent, fluent in English, uh, really important um, uh, youth leader of of the '80s, and he's going to become their sort of right wing populist leader uh, by today. Um, <laughs> the party's going to start out. Oh, they were. If you remember, the, they were the party that came out with this really wonderful um, election campaign slogan. In like the first election, it was like early '90. Uh, very first election, the communists running against the socialists, against Fidesz, against Hungarian form. They're about seven or eight uh, big parties. And they had, the, the, uh, they had a picture of Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet leader, giving a big wet kiss on the mouth to Janos Kadar, the Hungarian uh, communist leader. And then they had this like, cute young couple on a park bench kissing each other. And then it's like, this, this is them and this is us, or their kiss and our kiss. And uh, so they're they a popular, uh, well liked party. They weren't really big large, um, they were really only for young people to start. Uh, but by the early 90s, um, they start to become more conservative and they start to get a lot more votes. Uh, and by 2002, they're getting 41% of the vote. They lose by 1% to the socialists. And then in 2010, they defeat the socialists in a landslide. Uh, and end up getting 68% of the seats in parliament. That doesn't mean they got 68% of the vote. European elections are, are very strange, and you can, um, with all kind of parties, and then second follow-up elections, and on and on and on, so, so the, and the parties that don't qualify, even though they'll get votes, they don't get enough to get a seat, and so you end up with, uh, so the feda got about 52% of the vote, but got 68% of the seats. And that's a supermajority. You can amend the Constitution with 67%, so this is a safe majority. Um, why did they win? Well, first of all, and you always always look at the alternative. The socialists had totally screwed things up while they were in power. The economy was in bad shape. And their leader got taped at a cabinet meeting saying, we lie about the economy so we can get votes. <laughs> and so uh, he got voted out after that. Uh, and that was the end of them. So Fidesz ends up with 133 out of 199 seats. Now, what about its character? Similar to law and justice, um, very much uh, for drifting the country in an authoritarian way. Weaken media oversight. Weaken judiciary oversight uh, or independence. The EU will fight with Hungary about these things. Um, big uh, supporters of social welfare, uh, like, like law and justice. Uh, but where they differ from law and justice is foreign policy. Orban, their leader, is pro-Russia. He likes Putin. Partly this is because Hungary does no source of energy, and they want to get cheap energy from Putin. Uh, partly it's because they want to find alternative trading partners to the EU. Partly it's to balance out the EU. So we, you know, we, if they try to dictate to us, we have this big friend in the East we can turn to. Partly it's because the U.S. is disengaged from this part of the world. You know, Obama's kind of uh, not written off completely, but really uh, minimized American interest. And if, if you're in one of these East European countries and you're suspicious of the EU, you would like to turn to the United States as your big outside friend. If the United States doesn't care, then you turn to Russia. Orban wants to have kind of an illiberal democracy, he calls it. Uh, and he wants Russia and Turkey are kind of his models very hostile to immigrants, uh, which is, uh, and uh, taking in refugees, which is very popular uh, in Hungary. In fact, he takes the lead in Europe, in a lot of ways, in fighting against what they're seen as kind of German-pushed policies to accept uh, immigration. In spring of 2015, Fidesz's support was starting to, to wane. They lost their supermajority in a couple of um, by-elections, where you know, some seat opens up and you have to have a follow-up election. Uh, they lose a couple of those, so they end up like one, one seat under the supermajority. They tried to do attacks on the internet, which upset a lot of people, uh, and that hurt their uh, populate, uh, popularity. Uh, but at the same time, um, the refugee situation came, and that played really well for Orbán Because he took a strong stand against accepting refugees. Uh, he built a fence in southern Hungary to not let them in, in summer of 2015. Uh, Hungary got the most, per capita, the most asylum requests of any country in Europe. Uh, and there was this fear they would get uh, overwhelmed by refugees, and so they uh, basically shut the door, uh, and his popularity goes way up. So in April of 5th, 2015, it was at 28%, and by October it's 43%. And, and the big thing that happened between those two dates was he built a, a fence against the refugees. Uh, just, just an aside, just, uh, my own field is history of, of Catholic Church in Europe. And uh, one of the Peter uh, Erdu, uh, who's the he's the uh, head of the Catholic he's the bishop that runs the Catholic Church in Hungary he's the, the primate of Hungary is called, and he issued a letter at this time saying, Hungarians should not help any refugees that, that if you help a refugee you are engaged in human trafficking, and then Catholics in the opposition party. Then wrote, uh, uh, issue a statement saying this is crazy. Jesus and Mary and Joseph were refugees, and they quote all these Bible verses, and they said no, the Pope has been telling people to take in in refugees. Uh, and in fact, the Pope I think even talked to Erdo because, like, about three days later, he changed his mind totally, and said uh, it's okay to help uh, refugees. Uh, so Va- Vatican is very uh, heavily on the side of of uh, accepting refugees, but but. Firstly, none of these these countries are, not even Poland, which is a very uh, Catholic country. That brings me to Jobbik, which is the far right wing of of, uh, Hungarian politics. And I don't think, I've been been kind of looking around online, I don't think there's a a, a right wing, like extreme right wing party in Europe that's doing as well as Jobbik in terms of popular support. Their technical name is the movement for a better Hungary. Job, J-O-B-B, is the Hungarian word for better. Um, it's also the word for right, like right-ish, like right in the direction. So they can say, we're the right party, like right wing, and we're the right party, meaning the better party. We do this in America. You know, Right means correct in the United States as well as, as the direction. Uh, you know, you're driving a car and you'll ask your friend, should I turn left here, and if, if she says right, you don't know, <laughs> <laughs> or right. Well, they do the same thing, but with, with right or better. And so this jumping is a movement for, and a lot of, the, a lot of those really extreme movements, they, they want to be movements rather than parties. They want to you know, transcend parties, uh, make it a, uh, something beyond a party. Um, so it was founded in 2002 by students as a youth movement. Uh, and then in 2003, it becomes a political party. And it rises pretty quickly. So it gets 2% of the vote in 2006. But by 2010, it's getting 26% of the vote. And right now, it's around 20. It's got 23 seats in parliament out of 199. You know, a lot of places, parties like this have no, no seats. Some countries have rules that you can't, you know, get in unless you have so many votes. But they're getting enough votes. They're getting uh, you know, twenty percent is a lot of vote uh, to get. In spring of two thousand fifteen, there was a by-election in Etanco Tapoza, and Jobit won thirty-five percent of the vote. They defeated Fides by one percent and the left-wing party by about six, uh, by nine percent. So this is remarkable that, that a party like, that that's that far to the extreme uh, could run in an election. And, and pull that much of, of the vote. So what are his positions? You know, a lot of it's similar to the right wing populism I've been talking about. Um, they're hostile to the EU, but, but to a greater degree. So they're, they're all outright hostile to the EU. They're not just like Euroskeptic. They're just like anti-EU, anti-globalization, anti-global capitalism. Uh, they're tough on crime. They want to bring back the death penalty. Uh, they're nationalist in a really big way, like they, they want to really restore the old borders of Hungary since before World War I. Uh, when you see guys walking around Budapest with jackets that have a patch with the, the map of old Hungary on there, that's you know, about t- more than twice the size it is today, uh, those are Jombik people. Um, they want, they're very concerned about uh, the position of Hungarians living across the border in other countries. There are a lot of them in Romania and in Slovakia, for example. Uh, whose cause they take up. They set up a party militia. That's an old kind of a fascist, not just fascist, I mean communists did it too, socialists did it. It's a, uh, you know, having your own party militia. So when there's, you know, uh, so you can protect your speaker at the rally, so you can beat up hecklers, and so they called it the Maja Garda. Maja is their word for Hungarian. So the Hungarian Guard uh, was the party militia, and it kept order at rallies, but it also did things like, um, disaster relief and charity uh, and whatnot. And um, in 2009, the government banned it. Said that we're not going to have party uh, militias. We don't no. have party militias yet in the United States. But that would be really interesting and colorful part of our <laughs> society. And it's harking back right into the 19th, like Central York in the 1930s had a lot of these party uh, militias. Gives kids something to do. Um, <laughs> Jopik, uh, Jopik is uh, openly racist. Uh, they'll openly attack uh, the Roma or Gypsy population, uh, you know, verbally. Uh, they're very anti-Semitic. They don't like Jews. They don't like Israel. Uh, they equate, you know, when they attack global capitalism, it's usually somehow connected with, with Jews. Uh, one of their parliamentary reps even suggested that Hungary drop a register of all the people in the country of Jewish ancestry. So you can kind of keep an eye on them and, and uh, stop them from undermining uh, Hungary. Uh, one of their parliamentary reps called the Holocaust a uh, holo scam, uh, for example. So they'll, they'll say kind of things that, that uh, e- even in that Central European context, uh, don't sound very good. Hostile to sexual minorities uh, as well. Why are they uh, relatively successful? Okay, they're not winning the majority of the population, but they've got a sizable, you know, bit, okay, bigger than anywhere in Europe for an extreme right wing party. Uh, well, again, the left wing is very fractured. They've never really recovered from the scandals in 2010. And so, um, there's not a, so, if you're really upset with Orban and the government, the alternative, the more viable alternative, is the right wing party. Uh, so, that will get uh, attraction uh, to Jobbik. Uh, in fact, I've met, just even since the 90s, when, I, when I've met Europeans, I've met a Romanian and an Austrian who both voted for what we'd consider right wing radical parties. Uh, and, and they both said, they just hate the government. They just hate their government, and, and this is the only like, alternative out there that really uh, has some, some impact where you can make a pro. I mean, like if you hate the government in say, state, now you've gotta vote for Trump, right? You can't vote for Bernie anymore, he's, he's, he's done. Um, so people will, will sometimes, you know, maybe they, they may not necessarily want Jobbik to win, but they wanna make that statement that we don't like the government, so we're gonna vote for them. Jobbik also rebranded itself recently. Its leader Gabor Vona, he's not quite as important as those other guys, so I didn't put him on the list there. But uh, he's kind of did a makeover for the party, so they don't they don't openly attack uh, gypsies as or Roma population anymore. Um, they've cut out anti cut back on anti Jewish statements, but they'll still attack Israel. Um, when the Magyar Garda got disbanded, they didn't try to like bring it back in some new form. They just said, okay, we just won't have uh, a militia. Uh,
1: and they also do they're really good at
0: outreach to youth through social media through you know rock concerts uh, with a you know right wing theme that's actually popular in this this region are these these um, like ultra nationalist almost like racist rock concerts where, where you know, young people will get together and have you know big rock show all day long and one of my students a former grad student went to one of these in Croatia and uh, there were people with this emblem of the Ustasha. That was the Croatian fascist during World War Two. Uh, and you know, like like some like a you nineteen-year-old know, girl wearing real like Daisy Dukes or whatever, and there's like a has like a Ustasha symbol tattooed to her thigh. You know, people like this. And he sent me some some pictures. And he tried to light he tried to light somebody's Ustasha flag on fire with his cigarette. And and luckily, somebody one of his friends stopped him. Um, or they would have killed him, probably. Um, You've got to be really careful with that. But anyway, this is, this is part of this kind of youth culture. There's this right wing youth culture uh, you find in this region. Um, this helps Orban in a couple of ways. First of all, Orban and Fidesz can say, "Look, you know, don't call us radical uh, extremists. Jobiks are the extremists. We're the moderates. We're the normal guys here in the middle. Uh, also, because Orban is hostile to immigrants, Yobik can't use that issue against him. If Orbán was being immigrant-friendly like Angela Merkel, Jobbik would be getting bigger, bigger, bigger. Uh, but Jobbik uh, can't take advantage of Orbán's uh, softness on immigrants because Orbán isn't soft on immigrants. So let me kind uh, of uh, make something. To, uh, I can be done by about. I'll be done in about five minutes, and then there'll be some questions, and then we can take a break. Um, So why were the populists successful in this region? I already mentioned some reasons. Let me just kind of reiterate and expand on a few. So economic insecurity. You know, where there's unemployment, where there's stagnant wages, uh, these movements will have appeal. Also, the idea that, you know, when a country's cutting its budget at home and having to cut some programs, and then they're also taking in refugees and giving the refugees benefits, that makes people really mad. It's like, we have all, if we have money for you know, Syrian refugees, why don't we have it for ourselves? So that's a long uh, mentality you'll find in a lot of places. I mean, Almost anywhere would think like that uh, under certain conditions. Secondly, there's the sense that the EU and Europe is run by self-serving elites who aren't held responsible for their mistakes. And that there are these real problems in Europe. There are serious problems with unemployment. There are serious problems with the threat of terrorism. Uh, and all the European uh, Eurocrats can do is say, well, you're a fascist if you, if you bring those issues up. And you know, calling somebody a fascist isn't going to stop terrorism and it's not going to create jobs. Uh, and so, in this sense, Europe's not really responding to these real problems. They're just calling names uh, at the people who are pointing these problems out. There's cultural insecurity, this sense that governments are unable to protect their own citizens from terrorism. Uh, so, uh, if we didn't know this already, we learned uh, fairly recently that in Europe, intelligence agencies don't often share information. So one country might have a list of terrorists, but it doesn't tell the other country uh, about it. Uh, that's been a problem. There's this sense of loss of control over your borders. You know, if someone comes in, if a terrorist comes into Europe in Sicily, he can go all the way to Denmark without having to show anybody a passport or any sort of documentation. Uh, that's uh, People saying that that's a mismanagement uh, of the situation. Uh, an appeal that populists have, and they have it all over the world, is uh, uh, they're seen as a reaction against political correctness. I mean, these are the guys that will tell it like it is. They're not afraid uh, of, of uh, saying certain things. And this has come up a few times now, because there are cases now in Europe where there will be crimes committed by immigrants or by minority populations that the government will, will not want to address. Uh, those uh, sexual assaults uh, at carnival time—it took a few, was a couple of day lag before the police or the government would admit that these were you know immigrants attacking uh, German women or those uh, prostitution rings of white of teenage and underage white girls run by Pakistanis. And I think it was in Manchester in England. That was just hushed up by the police for years uh, because they didn't want to provoke uh, a conflict with a uh, immigrant uh, or based community. Uh, so these kinds of things. You know, so We can't trust our own governments to tell us the truth. We've got to go and listen to the populists. They attract youth. You know, the idea that the, these you know, right-wing populists, are these angry old men that just want to go back to the old days, doesn't it really play out statistically. Young people are proportionately more likely than less likely to get involved in right-wing populist politics. Um, and there's a number of reasons. First of all, they're hit the hardest by the recession. I mean, there are young people in Europe who will never have a decent job. They're never going to have a full-time job uh, of, of anything that they would find uh, rewarding. Uh, so they're, they're uh, uh, susceptible to these things. Also, young people tend to get you know, disgruntled with the established institutions and their inability to solve certain problems. And of course, the EU is an established institution. And so if you're disgruntled, if you're against the institutions, uh, the EU is the big one. Um, young people oftentimes are impatient. They want fast and easy solutions to complex problems. Uh, Oftentimes, they have less to lose. They don't have to pay a mortgage. They don't have to worry about children and family and a job that they uh, have invested a lot in. Uh, They can take political adventures, they can stick their neck out uh, in ways. Um, And this is, it goes by, you know, the Nazis were very attractive to young people, fascist movements were attractive uh, to young people. Uh, for a lot of these reasons. Um, and then the movements play this up. So you know these, these populist, right-wing movements, they're good with social media, they're good with the rock concerts, uh, they do things that will attract youth. Another thing that in a sense can help, helps the right-wing uh, parties, m- not not uh, law and justice or Fides because they're in the government, they're ruling, but in a lot of places where the right-wing party is still on the margins, like Jobbik and some other places, um, the fact that the other parties treat you like a pariah—they don't want you in the government—and uh, when you're not in the government, then you never have to take responsibility for anything. You can sit back and criticize and criticize and criticize and never have to. Like you said this with the United States. You know, if you're, if uh, you know, Trump can criticize everything the government does because he's not been in the government. Whereas, Hillary Clinton, you know, criticizing the government, you're criticizing her. She's been a, a player in it for many, many years. Uh, so the more extreme the party, the easier it is for them to attack uh, the establishment because uh, the establishment won't let them be a part of it. So they never have to really, you know, really do a real job. They never have to get out of bed and get to their office and manage a big pile of paperwork and make decisions. Uh, they can just point out all the mistakes that other people are making. Um, big thing helping them is this this uh, refugee slash immigration question. Uh, and I'll hand with a couple of, of points that I think make Eastern <laughs> Europe different from the rest of Europe. Uh, and one is, East European countries don't have that kind of Western guilt about the non-Western world. You know, Hungary didn't have colonies in Africa, and, and, and you know, Slovakia didn't you know, own the, the Indian subcontinent. You know, they're not in a situation like Britain or France or these countries that have these big empires, ruled over non-Western peoples, and now feel that they have some sort of a debt to them. Uh, East, East European countries have no, no sense of this at all. In fact, they, their feeling is we were actually the, the colonized people. We were the people that were part of somebody else's empire. Uh, The Russians, but even if you're in the southern part, the Ottoman Empire. We were the victims of of Muslim oppression for hundreds of years. We don't have to feel guilty about that the way the British and the French and the Germans and other people uh, do. Uh, So that's that's easier in Eastern Europe to just say, we don't want immigrants. Uh, And then the other issue uh, that makes Eastern Europe Uh, a bit different is uh, nationalism, or or just national identity is very important. Because you're talking about countries that, again, as they tell their own history, they were under somebody else's authority for hundreds of years. And then late 19th, early 20th century, they got independence, they got their own nation states, and then pretty quickly, those got taken over by Hitler, and then they got taken over by the Soviet Union, and it wasn't until like the 1990s that these guys, a lot of them were getting their independence back and then there's a sense that we don't want to surrender that to the EU and have these West European uh, bureaucrats telling us uh, how we ought to uh, manage our our lives and our economies. Uh, and our, you know, they'll take the aid from Western Europe, uh, but they don't want to be told uh, what to do, uh, or be dictated to. Uh, so, so there's just kind of different dynamics uh, in this part of Europe than you'll find uh, in the uh, the more Western uh, and uh, Mediterranean. So we have a uh, five minutes or so for questions or comments. Yes. They're not just yeah. the Czech Republic? Oh yeah, that's okay. That's a. I didn't mean to because they're not they're kind of ruled by right wing populist party, but but populism is important there, and they have a left wing populism too. So the Czech president, the Czech government's more kind of middle of the road, you know, just middle of the road mainstream party, but the president's a kind of a left wing populist from the socialist movement Zelma. He's kind of a. colorful character, Um, and then Slovakia has the government's kind of a a weird assortment of right-wing and left-wing parties. Uh, It's called SMER. They get about half the country's vote. It's it's pretty, pretty uh, popular party. They, they like Russia. They like Putin. Uh, They want this kind of for social welfare programs, but also for like a more authoritarian system. They, they mirror a lot of these, but it's kind of a mix of kind of like kind of a lot of either former communists or people that come out of that. Movement as well, kind of merging in with this kind of a right wing movement, and and they'll play up, you know, kind of like hostility toward Hungarians, and so they'll use they'll use a lot of the same things the other guys are, are using, but but they're more um, more kind of a mix of left and right, but the, the populism still is still is playing out in those places. Yes. Um, do you think I've been in Hungary? Uh-huh. Um, like on the one hand, they have Terra house, which exposes all yeah, of yeah. these <laughs> levels of fascism through communism. Right. Um do, my sense was that another factor was also the, um, the warrior heritage of the Majora people and them being kind of a unique ethnic group. It's a little bit different than any of the other countries yeah. around there. Their language is different. Do you yeah. feel like that's yeah, a real Yeah, a, yeah and there, this whole, um, you find that you know, all that kind of Hungarian nationalism, is a sense that mm-hmm. we're a unique, there's nobody on earth with a language like mm-hmm. ours. We came in from you know, Central Asia or even the east of there. And, and we're surrounded by this sea of in, in, like, Slavic people and German people and so on, so we've got to like, tenaciously uh, stick to our identity. So kind of playing up that, yeah, that that's something definitely that plays into Hungarian uh, nationalism. And also, also, a lot of these populist movements will have a positive view of their country's regime during Second World War, as, as the Jobbik does. And those countries, they're all you know, pretty much alive with Hitler. Uh, the, you know, from our perspective, that's like a really bad thing to do. Yeah. These neo-national parties that are in Eastern Europe obviously heavily influenced by Socialists or Russia or this sort of thing. Are there any that are pretty conservative or, in regards to the economic scale, like free market? Yeah, you, 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 like? you have those. Th- oh, that's, you're more likely to find that on kind of the center and left center. So in Poland, the more leftish parties are more free market than, than the right-wing party. It's the same with, would go for Hungary. And I think same would go for Czechoslovakia and the Czech one. So this, yeah, those are considered like kind of liberal Western ideas. Uh, that uh, so, so yes, yeah, so what we call conservative United States doesn't play that like play the same way in anywhere. Really, in a lot of Europe, let alone Eastern Europe. But that's a good question. So you you'll definitely have those guys, uh, and you know like Václav Klaus, who was the former president of Czech Czech Republic. He he was very much kind of you know um, sympathetic to market and, and whatnot, but. Um, but uh, the the real populace that they want is kind of a strong state that's going to be kind of a paternalistic state. You know, take you got to get votes too. You got to give people something to get their vote. Somebody else? Oh, yes. You touched a little bit about the uh, Catholic um, background. I know Poland is something like ninety something percent uh-huh. Catholic, and Hungary is about the same. No, Hungary. has a huge Calvinist minority. Yes. Oh, it does. Okay. That's one of their like, so they're about you know like seventy percent maybe Catholic. Okay. How does that affect them when the pope is very um, pro-immigration? Um, how does that affect their, their politics? Well, you know, Catholics don't really have to listen to the pope on most issues. Uh, and that's definitely one of the issues. That, so they're free to kind of like, you know, yeah, your job is to kind of preach to the world and you know, say nice things. But we have to live with this stuff. So if we bring in immigrants and they start blowing things up, that, that's we have to live with that so we, we you know in fact the polish they even asked one of the polish government officials the exact question you asked me this guy was real catholic and he says that you know it's like his job is to you know preach and our job is to protect the security of the polish citizens and so so they'll make those those sort of i mean maybe paul ryan is is catholic no and he has economic policies that are way off of catholic teaching. Uh, from that you would get from the Pope, so it's it's on those sorts of where, where you're kind of applying Catholic teaching to your situation. There's a lot of like like freedom in how you want to uh, address <laughs> those things. So, yes. Anybody else? Do you have a question? No. Okay. Did you say seventy percent are Calvinists? No, they're about they're about twenty percent Calvinists. Okay, thank you. And that was a huge. You know, Poland actually used to have a lot of Calvinists too. That was a uh, the nobility like Calvinism because they're kind of like nobles are kind of like elders or presbyters, and um, and that's a big a big part of their whole. And a lot of the Hungarian national heroes were Calvinist, the guys that fought the Habsburgs and all of their various revolutions. And the, in Hungary, the, the Protestant you can tell the Protestant churches because they they don't have a cross on top, they have a mace with spikes. It's like we're the fighting uh, <laughs> Calvinists. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and definitely in their city, they call that the the Second Geneva. Yeah. Um, my. Uh, father's family heritage is from Austria, and uh-huh. I feel like they're kind of on this interesting mm-hmm. um, place between Western European mm-hmm. um, politics. Where do they fall in? The oh, Austria! Oh, Austria's yeah. great. They would have they'd fit really great in this whole session because um, they are, for a long time, the, the kind of the Socialists and the Catholic Party worked together. Since World War II, they cooperated. In the '30s, they were fighting in a civil war other. So after the war, they cooperated. and They built this Austria of like consensus where like you're gonna pass a law and the socialists have to make sure it doesn't hurt the workers and the Catholic Party has to make sure it's fair to business and on and on and on. And so but people started to get like turn against, you know react against the establishment and then the government was corrupt and cutting deals and so on. So so you got the Greens on the left wing and you got this like neo national like like a, like a right wing radical party on the right wing. And when they had the presidential elections, those guys beat the traditional parties. The parties that ran Austria for like 50 years got like 10 and 11% of the vote, and the Greens and the uh, Freedom Party, it's called, the right-wing party got most of the vote. so they had to have a runoff election, and the radical right-wing guy lost the election by just like, like uh, less than a 1% of the vote. And now they're doing a do-over, actually, like in the volleyball game the other night <laughs> on uh, uh, the Olympics. They're gonna do a do-over now because of some legal technicality, so they, they could elect in, like, in the next couple of weeks, I think, it might be even, like a radical right-wing uh, leader. And a lot of that is a protest vote against the old establishment parties. I mean, just like it is in the United States, and and um, and so and again, you know, it's like even if you win, it's like okay, but it's it's a ceremonial position with not a lot of authority, um, and so it's just it's more like symbolic statement that people are mad enough now about the status quo, they're going to go for extreme parties. Yes. Um. Brexit a lot of anti-Polish immigrant feeling there. Yeah, yeah. If that results in a net Polish influx back to Poland, do you think that will play into this Well That's scenario? a good question. You know, I, I know when they had the, when Law and lost the election in 2007, it was because of the votes of those immigrants. Because they were younger and you know, hipper and spoke English and new computers and all this. And they wanted a modern Poland. Uh, I don't know what, how, it would, how it would affect it today. Um, but that's a that's a good question. I told my son's in England right now. I said, <laughs> good thing your first name is like Stephen and not like Stefan or something. So now they'll know that you're not one of those East European immigrants that came to their country to take their job. And one, one of the things about these depressed areas is that actually the immigrants really can like liven up your economy in a lot of ways and bring in some, you know, this happening in Pennsylvania and like is Grant and all those those towns, like People will start moving there from Syria or somewhere in Africa, uh, and the whole community will become like it's Somalis. And then there's like, restaurants opening, and, and the taxes are coming in, and, and, and it really can uh, really uh, you know, enliven your economy. So a lot of times the depressed areas where people are just leaving and nobody's moving to. If you can you know, get immigrants channeled into those areas, uh, it can help the economy. But of course, it'll affect the, the local culture. Uh, so people are uh, it's not all about the economy. People worry about their, their cultures uh, as well. Okay. Well, you've been a, you've been a wonderful audience. <laughs> it was my pleasure to be able to talk to you, and enjoy the rest of the day.